We had a collaboration with some Chinese com uh, Chinese uh, scientists. Here we have a vaccine. What is the problem? Get over it. What we are very proud of now is that we penetrate the cabinets. Seriously, I'm, I'm making a serious point. I don't know what half of them are protesting against. We've still got Fauci walking around free. The man should be in irons in the darkest pit. As much as he touts that he cares about it, he doesn't. This is our revolution. It's not theirs. Don't let them take it from you. Don't let them convince you that it's their revolution when in fact it's not. It's ours. And we will have it. Tonight is going to be a very interesting podcast. Tonight's going to be one of our specials. We're not going to put a date on it because this is going to be aired probably two or three times. And I, I've got a lot that needs to be covered tonight. Tonight, of course, I'm joined by Bruce Adams and Marty Foster. And Marty, I'll ask you first, how are you today? I'm recovered after my um, fantastic weekend running around the forest, dressed as a Viking and being chased by the undead. Thank you very much for asking. How are you guys? I'm wonderful. Thank you very much. Uh, that sounds sounds lovely. You sent me some photos of uh, your uh, your weekend event, and I have to admit I'm quite jealous because of the uh, well, the the food just looked lush, to be honest. Uh, and I the wish that food I was, able was to try. pretty good. Yeah, I, I I wish you'd have been there as well because I need yeah. an extra two people to carry me on my shield. Yeah, would have been would have um, been a lot of fun. Would have been a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, Bruce, how are you? Uh, healthy and alive um didn't have as exciting weekend that that sounds like a lot of fun uh but it was a good you know it's been good nonetheless all week very good very good tonight we're going to spend our evening talk well i'm going to spend the evening talking about somebody that all of us are familiar with by this point and if you're not then you've been living under a rock for the last almost three years now and that is a gentleman by the name of klaus schwab founder of the World Economic Forum out of Davos, Switzerland, or is he? We're going to answer a lot of questions tonight that some might have, and we're going to maybe leave some hanging questions in there as well, because there are questions that, through what I've been able to find and dig up on this guy, uh, that I haven't been able to answer. And I'm not sure if history will prove us to ever have those answers or if they will ever be known to the world. Uh, I don't know. But tonight is going to be the question. Is it going to be the Klaus Schwab that we are all made to believe, right? Is it going to be the uh, the nice old uncle guy, you know, the kind guy that's going to give you everything and, you know, you're going to own nothing, you're going to be happy about it? Is he going to do good for humanity? Or... Is he, and I've heard this claim, I'm not making this claim, I'm just, I'm just throwing this out there, is he a son of a, of a Nazi collaborator who used slave labor and aided the Nazis, and is it possible that he could have done the same thing in a different fashion? These are the questions you have to ask. Is he self-made? Is he indeed the international mastermind that we all are made to believe, or is he a work of fiction? Is he a creation of someone or something? Well, let's find out. I want to start with a newspaper clipping. And I know this might sound a little crazy, but I ran this past the two of you about two or three weeks ago. I want to start with a newspaper clipping. This was a newspaper clipping out of a newspaper called Constria, which is out of Zurich, Switzerland. It's the French speaking part for those that are unaware. This article was dated July 17th of 1968. It's titled The Philosophy of Management. And it says the answers to this question were extremely sagacious and different 
but they all reflected the same tendency. Whoever wants to act wisely and successfully must make his arrangements on the basis of a planned long-term development. In other words, planning is absolutely necessary to ensure a company transition from the classic structures to management to this new corporate philosophy that must allow all employees to accept imperatives of motivation and to ensure at home the sense of flexibility and maneuver. Mr. Klaus Schwab, assistant to the president of the Escher Weiss Group in Zurich, which we will be talking about that in detail tonight, also pointed out how management designed according to objectives set and planned on time makes it possible to guarantee a planned development since the staff of a company is no longer confronted with orders to be executed, but with objectives that must be absolutely achieved at a given time and in a given way. That was originally written in French, but it was translated into English, so obviously so we could read it here. But if you were unaware that that was written in 1968 in a French newspaper out of Switzerland, would you not think that Klaus Schwab just said it today? Or an article out of one of these uh, these rags like the Washington Post or the Sun Papers or something would give such a piece of a statement of something like that from, say, Klaus Schwab or someone from the World Economic Forum? Sounds awful familiar, doesn't it? Certainly does. Now, I will be happy to take a pause in between there. I know, Marty, you probably already got questions before we get down into the meat and potatoes of this thing. But um, we're going to talk mostly about Klaus tonight. We're going to talk about the company that he worked for and his father worked for and its roles. We're also going to talk about his education and the people that he encountered through his years of education and what impact that had on him and what impact it has now. So feel free to interrupt at any point in time. Yeah. I finally managed to press the button correctly on my microphone to unmute it. Yeah, I do apologize. The the interesting thing I found from that from that piece that, that you discovered in the newspaper is that it took a really long time for some of those things that he was suggesting to actually happen. And they are they they do happen now in 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 business people are get a set objectives and the amount of orders people receive are less and less and less, but that's only in certain types of employment. In my type of employment, for instance, I'm told what I need to achieve. I'm given targets and I have to meet those targets. But the rest of the time, I'm fairly autonomous. The line management kind of leaves me alone as much as possible. And and to some degree, I quite like working that way. I'm not saying I've just suddenly become a, a fan of Klaus because I'm not a fan of Klaus. I hate Klaus very much. Hate's a strong word. Um, I wish I had a stronger one. But do do continue, sir. Okay, well, before we get into Klaus directly, we have to give a little bit of a backstory, just a small bit. Before I get into all of this, this uh, a lot of this was taken by some great investigative journalist work done by several different outlets, uh, but this is not all of my work. My work is just simply putting all the pieces together. Uh, that's all I did here because this is fragmented and taken from several different places, and uh, I'm just doing a, um, a bit of dot connecting, if you will, because this is scattered all over the place. So I took a 30 5,000 foot view and I put a microscope on it. That's all I've done. Everything that you're going to hear today is open source. This information is out there for you to go and read yourself. And I encourage you to do so because whether you like Klaus Schwab or not, that is a side issue. At the very least, in my humble opinion, the man should be respected. And the reason I say he should be respected is because it is only proper to respect one's adversary, is it not? You should never underestimate an enemy. And um, 
one of the first steps to underestimating someone and being taken by surprise is to treat them with disdain and disrespect because at that point you start to become complacent and that is what has happened to an awful lot of people around the world at the moment it's complacency that the globalist elite are using as their main weapon against us you can see in just about every attempt that they've made beginning with I'm, I'm fairly sure the 2008 crash was either engineered or they knew it was coming uh, and then we've got the pandemic sorry plandemic and now we've got war in ukraine so all of these things people are becoming complacent with them um, i've mentioned before the chinese curse may you live in interesting times well it seems we certainly have been cursed soundly from somewhere does it not it does it does and i will be honest um and i i didn't I didn't think that I would be at this point, but I, I certainly have a different view of who Mr. Schwab is after, and, and you probably will too after you hear this, because this is not who we think he is. And when I say a different view, I don't necessarily mean that in a good way, but hey, you be the judge. You be the judge. Let's start with a little bit of his backstory, because it's important to understand his roots. You've got to understand where he comes from to understand who the man he is today. So let's start. On July 10th, of 1870, Klaus Schwab's grandfather, Jakob Wilhelm Gottfried Schwab, referred to later as Gottfried, was born in Germany when Germany was at war with France. Karlsruhe was the town where Gottfried was born. Now, there's not a whole lot that I want to go into there, but basically he stayed there and got his basic education until he was about 18 years old. And at that point, uh, when he, when he turned 18 years old, Germany would see uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II take the throne upon the death of his father, Friedrich III. In 1893, a 23-year-old Gottfried Schwab would officially depart from Germany, giving up his German citizenship and leaving Karlsruhe in order to emigrate to Switzerland. At the time, his occupation was noted as being a baker, just a simple baker, right? Just a simple baker. That's all he was. Here, Gottfried would meet Marie Lappert, who was from Kirschberg near Bern, Switzerland, and who was five years younger than him. They would marry in Rogville, Bern on the 27th of May in 1898. And the following year, on April 27th, 1899, their child, Jürgen Schwab, was born. At the time of his birth, Gottfried Schwab had moved up in the world. He became a machine engineer. Pay very close attention to that profession because it's it's very relevant going forward. When Eugen was around one year old, Gottfried and Marie Schwab decided to return to live in Karlsruhe and Gottfried reapplied for German citizenship again. Eugen Schwab would follow in his father's footsteps and also become a machine engineer. And in future years, he would advise his children to do the same. Jürgen Schwab would eventually begin working at a factory in a town near Upper Schwabia in southern Germany, the capital of the district of Ravensburg in Baden-Württemberg, which again, that's down next to uh, Bavaria. The factory where he would forge his career was the German branch of a Swiss company named Escher Weiss. Switzerland had a lot of long-standing economic ties to the Ravensburg area, with Swiss traders in the early 19th century bringing in yarn, weaving products. Uh, in that same period, they delivered grain uh, until 1870, along with uh, animals, various uh, breeding animals, various cheeses, uh, deep within inside the Swiss Alps. Now, I'm not going to get into all this, you know, the deep, deep history of the uh, of the company. Uh, I have a visual of the company's charter that was dated in 1860. So, anyway, 
uh, skipping ahead a little bit to spare you the boring, all the, you know, everything that the company did up until a certain point. Nonetheless, they became a machine, uh, machining company. At the turn of the new century, so 1900, Escher Weiss had put the ribbon weaving to one side, right? Because that's what they used to do. They used to weave ribbons and cottons and things like that. They began to concentrate on much bigger projects like the production of large industrial turbines. And in 1907, they sought an approval and concession procedure for the construction of a hydropower plant near Dogern am Rhein which was reported in a Basel brochure from 1925. In 1920, Escher Weiss found themselves embroiled in serious financial difficulties. Treaty of Versailles, uh, for those that don't know the backstory, I mean, it was it was pretty horrendous, uh, the, uh, the uh, sanctions and everything on it, uh, which quite frankly, I think that led to World War II, part of World War II and the horrendous reparations that were put on Germany. I mean, what did you expect them to do? Uh, but anyway, the Treaty of Versailles had restricted the military and economic growth of Germany following the Great War. The Swiss company found the downturn in neighboring civil engineering projects too much to bear. So uh, as a result, they had to uh, reorganize the company in order to keep it from uh, going under and declaring bankruptcy and all the rest of it. Yet the company continued to deliver large-scale civil engineering contracts throughout the 1920s, as noted in the official correspondence written in 1924 uh, from Wilhelm III, Prince of Orek, to the company Escher Weiss and the asset manager of the House of Utrecht. So the document that was written by Wilhelm III discusses the general terms and conditions of the Association of German Water Turbine Manufacturers for the delivery of machines and other equipment for hydropower plants. Now, you might ask, what does all this have to do with all this? It's very important, very important because they're involved in hydroelectrics and machining and things like that. And what do you need to produce water of a certain kind? You need hydroelectrics. By the mid-1930s, uh, you got a, you have a question? No, because, um, well, sort of a question. So heavy water, which is what you're alluding to. I'm getting to that, yeah. Um, yeah, is obviously it has its uses um, in... Uh, in the enrichment of certain rare earth minerals, does it not? It does. Certainly does. Okay. Most notably, yes, sorry. That's it. Just, <laughs> Most notably, just you, making you know sure I was... Yeah, we'll, we'll get to yeah. that. Just making anyway, sure I was keeping up. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, the company went through a few stages of... Um, going through financial trouble and things like that. They found themselves in financial trouble again in the 1930s, but uh, I'm not going to go uh, not going to go through all that. Remember, they did have connections to the area of Ravensburg, Germany. I did mention that. Now, what connections were those? Let's take a look. Ravensburg was an was an anomaly in wartime Germany as it was never targeted by any ally airstrikes. Now, when I get into this, I wasn't able to find any answers for this. It would probably take me months to dig into this, but in the last three to four weeks since I've been putting all this together, I wasn't able to find any answers for these questions. And these are the ones that I said we're going to leave hanging because I just don't have an answer for them. Maybe you do. You as the listener. I'm not sure. You decide. The presence of the Red Cross and a rumored agreement with various companies, including Escher Weiss, saw the Allied forces publicly agree to not target the southern German town. It was not classified as a significant military target throughout the war, and for that reason, the town still maintains its original features. However, some more nefarious things were going on down there. Eugen Schwab, again, Klaus Schwab's father, continued to manage the, quote, National Socialist Model Company for Escher Weiss. The Swiss company would aid the Nazi Wehrmacht, which was the Nazi military, 
in the production of significant weapons of war as well as more basic armaments. The Escherweiss company was a leader in large turbine technology for hydroelectric dams and power plants, again as I said, but they also manufactured parts for German fighter planes. They were also intimately involved in much more sinister projects happening behind the scenes in which, if completed, could have changed the outcome of World War II. Western military intelligence were already aware of Escher Weiss's complicity and collaboration with the Nazis. This was, again, this was a contractor company. There are records available from Western military intelligence at the time, specifically Record Group 226 or RG-226, from data compiled by the Office of Strategic Services, or at the time, the OSS, which we refer to now as the CIA, which shows that the Allied forces were aware of some of the Escher Weiss's business dealings with the Nazis. And I have file numbers here as well. Uh, I will not list those because of the length of those, but um, I will be posting all of this research in our Telegram page at the end of, uh, at the end of today. Escher Weiss were the leaders in one of the blossoming fields, in particular the creation of new turbine technology. The company had engineered a 14,500 horsepower turbine for the Norsk Hydro Industrial Facility's strategically important hydroelectric plant of Vermok near Ryunken in Norway. The Norsk hydropower plant, part powered by Escher Weiss, was only the industrial plant under Nazi control capable of producing heavy water, an ingredient essential for making plutonium for the Nazi atomic bomb program. The Germans had put all possible resources behind the production of heavy water, but the Allied forces were aware of the potentially game-changing tech advances by the increasingly desperate Nazis as they continued to lose they were doubling down. Does that sound familiar? During 1942 and 1943, the hydro plant was the target of partially successful British commando and Norwegian resistance raids, although heavy water production continued. The Allied forces would drop more than 400 bombs on that plant, which barely affected the operations at the sprawling facility. In 1944, German ships attempted to transport heavy water back to Germany, but the Norwegian resistance were able to sink the ships carrying the payload. With the help from Escher Weiss, the Nazis were almost able to change the tides of war and bring about an Axis victory. Back in the Escher Weiss factory in Ravensburg, Jürgen Schwab, again, Klaus Schwab's father, had been busy putting forced laborers to work at his model Nazi company. During the years of World War II, nearly 3,600 forced laborers worked in Ravensburg, including at Escher Weiss. According to the city archivist in Ravensburg, Andre Schmoder, the Escher Weiss machine factory in Ravensburg employed between 198 and 203 civilian workers and prisoners of war during the war. Carl Schweitzer, a local historian, states that Escher Weiss maintained a small camp for forced laborers on the factory premises. The use of masses of forced laborers in Ravensburg made it necessary to set up one of the largest recorded Nazi forced labor camps in the workshop of the former carpenters at Ziegelstrasse 16. At the time, a camp in question accommodated 125 French prisoners of war who were later redistributed to other camps in 1942. French workers were replaced by 150 Russian prisoners of war, it was rumored, were treated the worst out of all the POWs. Yeah, there was a bad blood thing going on between the Russians and the Germans. Yeah, well, they weren't very nice to each other at all. The German prisoners weren't treated much better in the gulags either. One such prisoner was... Zina Jakosheva, uh, whose work card and workbook are held by the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Those documents identify her as a non-Jewish forced labor assigned to Ravensburg, Germany during 1943 and 1944. Jürgen Schwab would dutifully maintain the status quo during the war years. After all, 
with young Klaus Schwab having been born in 1938 and his brother Urs Weiner Schwab, born a few years later, Eugen would have wanted to keep his children out of harm's way, wouldn't he? Hmm. Now we move on to late 1930s. On March 30th, 1938, in Ravensburg, Germany, a young man named Klaus Schwab was born. He was the eldest child in a normal nuclear family. Between 1945 and 1947, Klaus attended primary school in all Germany. Klaus Schwab recalls in a 2006 interview with the Irish Times after the war, I chaired the Franco-German Regional Youth Association. My heroes were Ardner, de Gaulle, and de Gaspari. Klaus Schwab and his younger brother Urs Reiner Schwab were both to follow in the footsteps of their grandfather, Gottfried, and their father, Jürgen, and would both initially train as machine engineers. Klaus Schwab's father had told him that if he wanted to make an impact on the world, then he should train as a machine engineer. This would be the beginning of Schwab's university credentials, of which I have to say... They are legit, and they are very impressive. Klaus Schwab began studying his plethora of degrees at the Spalen Gymnasium in Ravensburg between 1949 and 1957, eventually graduating from the Humanitisches Gymnasium in Ravensburg. Between 1958 and 1962, Klaus began working with various engineering companies, and in 1962, Klaus completed his mechanical engineering studies at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich with an engineering diploma. The following year, he also completed an economics course at the University of of Freiburg, Switzerland. From 1963 to 1966, Klaus worked as an assistant to the director of the German Machine Building Association in Frankfurt. In 1965, Klaus was also working on his doctorate from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, writing his dissertation on the long-term export credit as a business problem in mechanical engineering. Then in 1966, he received his doctorate in engineering from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology at Zurich. At this time, Klaus's father, Jürgen Schwab, was well, he's he's in much bigger circles these days. You know, he was higher up in the uh, the business world, if you will. After being a well-known personality in Ravensburg as the managing director of Escher Weiss Factory from before the war, Eugen would eventually be elected as president of Ravensburg Chamber of Commerce. In 1966, during the founding of the German Committee for the Spielugen Railway Tunnel, Eugen Schwab defined the founding of the German Committee as a project that creates better and faster connection for larger cities in our increasingly converging Europe and thus offers new opportunities for cultural, economic, and social development. There's your start right there. Not only did that become the birthplace of what the Germans now consider the ICE, which is the Inner City Express, which links all of the major cities across Germany, you also had something that offered a new opportunity for cultural, economic, and social development. Sounds awful familiar, does it not? Marty, you have a question? I was just getting ready just in case I had one, but carry on. Very good. <laughs> Very good. In 1967, Klaus Schwab gained a doctorate in economics from the University of Freiburg, Switzerland, as well as a Master of Public Administration qualification from the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard in the United States. Pay very close attention to this part that we're getting into now. While at Harvard, Schwab was taught by Henry Kissinger, who he would later say that he was among the top three or four figures who had most influenced his thinking to ensure the course of his entire life. I have that clip, and then we're going to get into Henry Kissinger. I have met practically every leader in the last 40 years. And uh, there were only three or four leaders who really made a lasting impression on me. And um, 
what to a certain extent changed my thinking. Um, and one of those, one of those was Mandela. One, another one was my teacher at Harvard 50 years ago, Professor Henry Kissinger. And there you have it, right from his own words. I, I find that really difficult to believe that Schwab's way of thinking, it may have been affected but in his opinion, it would not have been improved by his meeting with Mandela. Um, Mandela, probably not. Kissinger, yes. And I'm going to explain why. But continue yeah. on. No, it's when you look at someone um, like Nelson Mandela, uh, a man who suffered at the hands of a ridiculously racist government, um, the man was accused of terrorism. He spent how many years 27 years or maybe maybe longer in jail anything he had to say to schwab would have been about peaceful protest it would have been about how uh, a grassroots movement could finally achieve its aims such as the anti-apartheid movement did in south africa but that would have all just been getting to know your enemy as far as schwab is concerned the way i see it but sorry, it was just something that occurred to me as we were going on there, because certainly the teachings of Kissinger, which are much more Machiavellian about how to manipulate and how to control and how to order things around you, that would be more what young Schwab was after. No, no, you're you're absolutely right. Um, and, and I want to I want to get into Henry Kissinger here just a little bit because he was, as you just heard Klaus say, he was very influential and changed his way of thinking. So let's find out why. And you're going to hear some other names in here too that I've mentioned here before, and you're going to see some other connections of other young global leaders that we see today. Heinz Alfred Kissinger, again, this part's about Henry Kissinger, was born in Bavaria, Germany on the 27th of May, 1923. Uh, the family that he was born to was one of the many Jewish families fleeing the persecution in Germany, uh, and they arrived in America in 1938. Kissinger would change his first name to Henry at 15 years old when he arrived in America by way of a brief immigration to London. His family would initially settle in Upper Manhattan, and Kissinger would begin attending the George Washington High School. 1942, Kissinger would enroll in the City College of New York, uh, and in early 1943, he was drafted in the U.S. Army. So where did they send him? Back to Germany, where they fled. On June 19, 1943, Kissinger would become a naturalized U.S. citizen. He would soon be assigned to the 84th Infantry Division, where he would be recruited by the legendary Fritz Kramer to work in military intelligence. Kramer would fight alongside Kissinger during the Battle of the Bulge. You know, the English-speaking troops that the Nazis had? and would later become extremely influential in American politics during the post-war era, influencing future politicians such as Donald Rumsfeld, you know, the guy that founded FEMA in America for our American listeners. Henry Kissinger would describe Kramer as being the greatest single influence on my formative years. That was cited out of a New York Times article entitled The Myth of Henry Kissinger. It was written in 2020. And as you can see here behind me, gentlemen, I have a picture here of Klaus Schwab and uh, Henry Kissinger, along with a former prime minister of England named Ted Heath. Ted Heath. Who, who yes. you've mentioned here before. Yes. He, he, he had this most ridiculous laugh and his shoulders would go up and down as he laughed. <laughs> he was ultra rich, ultra elite, a yachtsman, everything that you'd expect from a, a Tory of his time. So he was he was a, a very well connected man on on this side of the the Chanel 
and I do apologize. This was a photo I was able to pull. This is a, uh, these are the, uh, the Nazis that were standing out in front of the uh, Escher Weiss factory in Ravensburg during the Second World War, uh, just for historical purposes, for reference. During World War II, while Kissinger was serving in the U.S. Counterintelligence Corps, he would be promoted to the rank of sergeant and would go on to serve in military intelligence reserve for many years after peace was declared. I've also heard during this time that he was recruited. Now, this is from a different source that I'd heard. He's been, at this time, he'd been recruited by the KGB. Now, we don't know this to be an absolute fact. Obviously, they're not going to have documentation of that. But what we do know is that Kissinger takes audience and luncheons at the Kremlin on a regular basis and has been doing so for many years, most notably recently with Vladimir Putin. During the period that Kissinger was serving in uh, the intelligence reserve, he would take on the charge of a team hunting down Gestapo officers and other Nazi officials who had been labeled as saboteurs. After the war in 1946, Kissinger would be reassigned to teach at the European Command Intelligence School, a position he would continue to work in as a civilian after officially leaving the army. It's very important to understand this. In 1950, Kissinger would graduate from Harvard with a degree in political science, where he would study under William Yandel Elliott, who would eventually be a political advisor to six U.S. presidents, and would also serve as mentor to Zbigniew Brzezinski, who, on a side note, was the national security advisor under Jimmy Carter, who was responsible for the creation of a gentleman by the name of Osama bin Laden and a group called the Mujahideen out of Afghanistan, who were used to fight against the Soviets. And this gentleman would also become a political advisor to a gentleman by the name of Pierre Trudeau, who just so happens to be the father at least the legal father of Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, among many others. Uh, just to also point out, talking about Kissinger and and the 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 luncheons he's having at the the uh-huh. with the Russians. Yeah. Yep. It, isn't it interesting that uh, Putin is going into Ukraine right now because of Nazis? Is it, it is that's funny. the claim? Yeah, it is interesting. Certainly interesting. Yendel Elliott, which again was the one that influenced Kissinger, along with many of his star pupils, would serve as the key connectors between the American National Security Establishment and the British Roundtable Movement, embodied by organizations such as the, uh, you're going to have to help me on this one, Marty, uh, the Caddam House uh, in the UK and the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States. Can you clue us into those institutions? Are you aware of them? Caddam House. I'm aware of the. I'm aware of the Round Table and the. the how how's the something house spelt? Uh, maybe it's Chatham House. Uh, C H A T H A M. Chatham. Chatham House. Okay. Chatham House. Chatham is um a port in Kent, and it was one of the major naval ports. But Chatham House is probably something to do with the Admiralty. Yeah, and I also believe that that's part of the. Um, didn't you guys used to have like dinner clubs there where the young university people that oh, were Oh yeah, the dining the dining the, yeah, the yeah. dining club. I, I, yes. I remember reading in a in I believe it's in the big book that once they would be brought in through those circles, they would eventually end up with influential members it was of this a, organization. It was a, a route to being introduced to the great and good. Uh-huh. The, these dining clubs at, at the you uh-huh. know You've got your Ivy League universities in the U.S., and we've and they got all lead to the Council on you know, Foreign Relations. So exactly. it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah. Now, what would these groups do? Well, these individuals would seek to impose global power structures shared by big businesses, the political elite, and academia. Kissinger would continue to study at Harvard, gaining his master's and PhD degrees at that university. But he was also already trying to forge a career path in intelligence. Reportedly, he was seeking a recruitment 
as an FBI spy during that period, but nothing was ever done with that. Nothing that I could find anyway. In 1951, Kissinger would be employed as a consultant for the Army's Operation Research Office, where he would be trained in various forms of psychological warfare. This awareness of PSYOPs was reflected in his doctoral work during the period. His work on the Congress of Vienna and its consequences invoked thermonuclear weapons as an opening gambit. In 1954, Kissinger was hoping to become a junior professor at Harvard, but instead, the dean of Harvard at the time, McGeorge Bundy, another pupil of William Yandel Elliott, recommended Kissinger to the Council on Foreign Relations. At the Council on Foreign Relations, Kissinger would start managing a study group on nuclear weapons. From 1956 to 1958, Kissinger also became the director of special studies for the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, of which David Rockefeller... Yeah, I see two people laughing already. Uh, of which David Rockefeller was vice president of the Council on Foreign Relations during the same time, as well as going on to direct multiple panels to produce reports on national defense, which would gain international attention. In 1957, Kissinger would seal his place as a leading establishment figure on thermonuclear war after publishing Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy, a book published for the Council on Foreign Relations by Harper and Brothers. In December 1966, the Assistant Secretary of European Affairs, John M. Letty, announced the formation of a 22-man panel of advisors to help shape European policy. The five most prominent actors of this panel of advisors included Henry Kissinger, representing Harvard, Robert Osgood of Washington Center on Foreign Policy Research, funded by Ford, Rockefeller, and Carnegie Foundations, Melvin Continent, of the Rockefeller Standard Oil Company, Warner R. Schilling of Columbia University, and Raymond Vernon, who was also from Harvard. The other people on this panel included four members of the Council on Foreign Relations, Shepard Stone of the Ford Foundation, with the rest being a mixed bag of representatives from leading American universities. The forming of this panel could be considered the laying of the foundation and stone marking the American branch of the roundtable establishments intent to create an organization such as the World Economic Forum whereby Anglo-American imperialists would mold European policies as they saw fit. Is it starting to seem like it's taking that little bit of turn, maybe? Maybe just a little bit? Henry Kissinger had identified American involvement in the European policy creation as being vital in the future peace and stability of the world. At the time, Kissinger was based at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Here, the future founder of the World Economic Forum, young Klaus Schwab, would catch the eye of Henry Kissinger. Again, so this is where the two now meet. You have to give a backstory on Kissinger to understand where he comes from, to understand how he influenced Klaus. Kissinger was the executive director of the International Seminar, which Schwab often mentions when recollecting his time spent at Harvard. On April 16, 1967, it would be reported that various Harvard programs had been receiving funding from the Central Intelligence Agency. This included $135,000 of funding of Henry Kissinger's International Seminar, funding which Kissinger claimed he was unaware had come from the U.S. Intelligence Agency. I had no idea. You see that? He had no clue. Had no clue the CIA was funding his uh, his international seminar. You could see how the that, that would be, you know, conflict of interest there just a little bit. He had no clue. That's what he said. He had no clue. And yet he was already being earmarked as as a man to work in intelligence organizations uh -huh. and, and so on. And he uh -huh. had no clue. He had no clue. So he said he did. Was he the first person to invent the phrase plausible deniability? Was, was he possible. the first one? It's quite possible that the reason it exists yeah. is because of him. 
But there's this there's this image going because you've you've talked for quite a while now, Johnny. I mean, and I am enjoying it. But there's this image going through my head at the moment um, of a film I think we probably all watched called The Thirteenth Warrior. I've heard of have it. Have you yes, seen I, that? I I might and, have. I'm not uh, sure. It's basically about a group of of Vikings traveling to help a village that have got a lot of trouble, and they're on a boat, and they've got the Thirteenth Warrior. Uh, played by um, Banderas, Antonio Banderas, is is playing an Arab. And, um, of course, water on a Viking longship is is fairly a rare commodity or a, a precious commodity, and they're all about to have their morning wash. And it starts with the leader, and he washes and spits, and then the next guy, and then by the time it gets down to the 13th guy, there's nothing but saliva and snot in this bowl that he has to wash in. And if you look at the, the chain of links from Schwab's grandfather through to his father, through to all these people that this guy is coming into contact and being influenced by, his bowl that is his influence, that, that sets his... um that sets his character and his ideas for the future is saliva and sputum by the time it gets to him, isn't it? I don't know if that's it too graphic an is. image for people no, to pick it's, up. No, that's that, pretty good. Pretty good pretty that's good pretty much the tale you're telling so far, isn't it? So that's anyone who's seen that film um, will understand what I mean. And anyone who hasn't seen that film, you jolly well should. It's a really good film. So to uh, to kind of fast forward here a little bit, because uh, this is uh, I, I could sit here and I could probably go on for uh, for three hours of this. But in the interest of time, throughout all of the Harvard programs that received funding, Kissinger's program received CIA funding between the years of 1961 and 1966, uh, and it would run through 1967. Klaus Schwab arrived at Harvard in 1965. So right at the right at the uh, the midpoint of that on April 15th of 1967, the Harvard Crimson would publish an article attributed to no author stating that there were no strings attached to the aid, so the government could not directly influence research or prevent its results from being published. That was a dismissive article of the CIA links to Professor Kissinger's programs there. So nonchalantly, they closed out by stating, in any case, were the university to refuse to accept CIA research grants, the agency would have little trouble channeling its offers through another agency. Well, that's, that's okay. We'll just put it through a, a front company or a shell company over here. That's fine. It's no problem. We'll, we'll create something over here and we'll just run it through that. So what does this have to do with Klaus? Well, the evidence points to Klaus Schwab having been recruited by Kissinger into his circle of, quote, roundtable imperialists via a CIA-funded program at Harvard University. In addition, the year he graduated would also be the year in which it was revealed to have been a CIA-funded program. The CIA-funded seminar would introduce Schwab to the extremely well-connected American policymakers who would help him create what would become the most powerful European public policy institute, the World Economic Forum. Huh. That's interesting. That's really interesting. So let's go back. I mean, you can get back into the whole thing where K Kissinger went on to go work for the uh, the Nixon administration right after that. He was the, uh, the secretary of state under Richard Nixon uh, and then goes on to um, to other um, other things. And of course, he worked for Barack Obama. He was a special envoy to the State Department there. And he's still involved in American politics today. And of course, there's been many cases where he is a guest of honor at the World Economic Forum each year. Well, I would say so, seeing as how it's a brainchild of his, isn't it? So let's go back, shall we? Klaus was there 
right? He was brought up under Henry Kissinger. So let's take a look at the years that he spent after that. Let's, let's look at that. In 1967, Klaus Schwab officially burst onto the scene of the Swiss business community and took a lead in the merger between a company called Solzer and a company called Escher Weiss. Interesting, huh? As well as forming profitable alliances with Brown, Bavaria, and others, in December of 1967, Klaus would speak at a Zurich event to the top Swiss machine engineering organizations, the Employers Association of Swiss Machine and Metal Manufacturers and the Association of Swiss Machine Manufacturers. In his talk, he would correctly predict the importance of incorporating computers into modern Swiss machine engineering, which he took the company from a machining company and transformed it into a technology company. It's very important, isn't it? Back then, because you're changing, you're revolutionizing something. And now where are we at? With him stating the same type of stuff. We're going to see a merger of our physical, our digital, and our biological identities, right? He's taking the old business model and he's using businesses to do it. He's taking the old businesses and he's using them to re-engineer and chart a way into the future under his, well, or maybe not his, actual view. Klaus Schwab was helping to turn Solzer Escher Weiss into something more than just a machine building giant. He was transforming them into a technology corporation, driving at high speed into a high-tech future, which again, Back in the late 1960s, that was quite a feat. That was quite a feat. It should also be noted that Solzer Escher Weiss changed another focus of their business to help them, quote, form the basis for medical technology products, which was an area that was not previously mentioned as a target industry for Solzer or Escher Weiss. But the technological advancement wasn't the only upgrade Schwab wanted to introduce at Escher Weiss, at Solzer Escher Weiss, excuse me. He also wanted to change how the company thought about their business management style. Uh, yeah, remember, stakeholder capitalism has to be the way. Regular capitalism, no, that doesn't work anymore. No, that doesn't work anymore. Schwab and his close associates were pushing an entirely new business philosophy, which would allow all employees to accept the imperatives of motivation and to ensure an at-home sense of flexibility and maneuverability. It is here, in the 1960s, where Klaus Schwab begins to emerge as a more public figure. At the time, the Sulzer Escher Weiss Company also became more interested in engaging with the press more than ever. In January 1969, the Swiss giants set up a public advisory session entitled The Press Day of the Machine Industry, which would be concerned about questions on company management. During the event, Schwab would state that companies use authoritarian styles of business management and are unable to fully activate the human capital, an argument he would use on different occasions throughout the 1960s. Escher Weiss, being involved in the manufacturing and selling of nuclear, nuclear technology in the 1960s, was shown in a patent, uh, and I do have a copy of the patent, uh, to have a patent for a heat exchange arrangement for a nuclear power plant. Remember what his father did for the company under the Nazis. He developed heavy water for their nuclear program. Remember that. Now, the company has a patent for heat exchange arrangement for a nuclear power plant. And this patent from 1966 for a nuclear reactor gas turbine plant with emergency cooling. After Schwab left Solzer Escher Weiss, uh, Solzer would be able to help develop special turbo compressors for uranium enrichment to yield reactor fuels. When Klaus Schwab joined Solzer Escher Weiss in 1967 and started the recognition of the company to be a technology corporation, the involvement of Solzer Escher Weiss started to turn a little bit darker, shall we say. The global nuclear arms race was on and it was more pronounced. 
right? Because we were headed into the Cold War. Before Klaus Schwab became involved, Escher Weiss had concentrated on helping design and build parts for civilian uses of nuclear technology. Yet with the arrival of Klaus Schwab also came the company's participation in the illegal proliferation of nuclear weapons technology. By 1969, the incorporation of Escher Weiss into Sulzer was fully completed and they would be rebranded into Sulzer AG, dropping the historic name Escher Weiss from their company name. It was eventually revealed, thanks to a review and report carried out by the Swiss authorities, this is another question that I don't have an answer for, and a man named Peter Hoog, that Solzer Escher Weiss began secretly procuring and building key parts for nuclear weapons during the 1960s. The company, while Schwab was on the board, also began playing a critical role in the development of South Africa's illegal nuclear weapons program during the years of the apartheid regime. Klaus Schwab was a leading figure in the founding of a company, Culture, which helped Pretoria build six nuclear weapons and partially assemble a seventh. In a report, which, by the way, right there, that's where Klaus Schwab broke international law, I might add. In the report, Peter Hoog outlined how Sulzer Escher Weiss AG, referred to as a post-merger of just Sulzer AG, had supplied vital components to the South African government and found evidence of Germany's role in supporting the racist regime, also revealing that the Swiss government was aware of the illegal deals, but tolerated them in silence, while supporting some of them actively and criticized them only half-heartedly. The Swiss, the Swiss government, of all people, the, the historically neutral Swiss, Hoog's report was eventually finalized in a work entitled, which you can go and find this, Switzerland and South Africa, 1948 to 1994. Final report of the NFP 42 plus commissioned by the Swiss Federal Council, which was compiled and written by George Christ and published in 2007. In 1967, South Africa had constructed a reactor as part of a plan to produce plutonium, the Safari 2, located at Pelindaba. Safari 2 was part of a project to develop a nuclear reactor moderated by heavy water, which would be fueled by natural uranium and cooled using sodium. This link to developing heavy water for the creation of uranium, the same technology which had been utilized by the Nazis also with the help of Escher Weiss, might just explain why South Africans initially got Escher Weiss involved. But by 1969, South Africa abandoned the heavy water reactor project at Palindaba because it was draining resources from their uranium enrichment program that began in 1967, again, the same year that Schwab joined the board. Now, again, he, he wasn't a, a factory worker. He was an academic before that, Schwab. He wasn't a factory worker. And he goes right onto the board of this company? Huh. That's a bit strange. That is a bit strange. It was probably on the strength of the shares that he had in Essa Weiss which would have been built up over a number of years from grandfather through father mm -hmm. and to himself. Uh -huh. So his um, his place on the... But that, that was probably kept very, very quiet. Uh-huh. So let's skip ahead. Let's go to 1970. And we're getting low on time here. We're getting really low on time, but I'm going to try and make this as quick as possible. In 1970, a young upstart named Klaus Schwab wrote to the European Commission and asked for help in setting up a, quote, non-commercial think tank for European business leaders. The European Commission would sponsor the event as well, sending French politician Raymond Barr to act as the forum's intellectual mentor. Raymond Barr, who was at the time the European Commissioner for Economic and Financial Affairs, would later go on to become French Prime Minister. In 1970, also the same year, Schwab left Escher Weiss. 
to organize, listen to this, this is extremely important, left Escher Weiss to organize a two-week business managerial conference. In 1971, the first meeting of the World Economic Forum, then called the European Management Symposium, convened in Davos, Switzerland. Around 450 participants from 31 countries would take part in Schwab's first European Management Symposium, mostly made up of managers from various European companies, politicians, and U.S. academics. The project was recorded and organized by Klaus Schwab and his secretary, Hilda Stoll, who later that same year would become Klaus Schwab's wife. And of course, they have two children now, Nicole and Olivier. Uh, Olivier. Now, I'm asking, and this is just common sense for me, a college student who, again, has non-disputed academic credentials, and they're very impressive. No argument. No argument. You have to respect those, as far as I'm concerned. Those are no small degrees that that man earned. But he leaves Harvard University after being coddled, shall we say, brought up under the tutelage of someone like Henry Kissinger, who was- Is the is the correct word, I think you'll find. Groomed. Groomed, yes. Yes, that's a- <laughs> It's a common buzzword these days. Why not? Groomed by Henry Kissinger, who he himself was a product of the intelligence agencies, and all of his work at Harvard University was paid for by the Central Intelligence Agency. Klaus Schwab was brought up under that. Goes back to Europe, goes back to Switzerland, gets put on the board in 1967 of a company that was run by his grandfather and his father. He does dirty dealings. Same as his father, same as his grandfather within that same company. He leaves in 1970 and he starts the European Management Symposium, of which you had 450 participants of 31 countries from major corporations, politicians and U.S. academics attended. What does a person who has earned a paycheck for 36 months their entire life, what do they know? about managing business. And you've got 450 participants from 31 countries and academics from all over the world show up. Something in this does not smell right. I find it interesting that it was called a management symposium and not a business direction symposium. And and I think my guess at it, and again, I've no proof of this, is that it was kind of a... A filtering recruitment drive to see who amongst the management levels in in business within Europe uh, and and the rest of the West were the right kind of people to be further groomed to become the directors, owners, you know, the non-executive sort of levels. Because I would have expected, you know, the head honchos of these big companies to be there at that symposium if it was going to be any good. And they'd be the ones who'd be speaking about how they do business, how where they've had success. Klaus, at this point, as you say, has only drawn a paycheck for three years. He's spent all his the rest of his time in academia. And so he's got lots of, of book learning, but no practical application of business techniques, of management techniques. And I would imagine he's got, he knows more about how to pick someone who thinks the same way as him. And I think that is possibly what that first symposium did. But that's just my guess at it. There's also something else here. This is a this is a clip I wanted to play. This is from a, uh, a think tank from 1961 from a group that's called the Hudson Institute. And this was put together by a theorist by the name of Herman Kahn, who was also brought up under the uh, the same type of atmosphere as Kissinger and uh, uh, and obviously and and has 
met Klaus Schwab on several occasions. Now, I, I want to play this. Again, this is from 19... I want you to think about this. This is from 1961, okay? 1961. So this is right at the beginning of this, this new era, right? As a matter of fact, that's actually what it's mentioned in the big book, the new era, this particular period. 1961's when all this started to spin up, right? Kissinger was being put at Harvard, and then you had formations of groups like this, these think tanks, and Schwab himself was talking to the European Commission before the formation of the European Management Symposium, which we know today is the World Economic Forum, he was asking permission to start a think tank, wasn't he? That's what he wanted to do. And when you're asking permission to start a think tank and you are around these types of individuals, this is what they come up with in America. Listen to this. 30 miles north of New York City, the problems of our violent age are pondered over in one of America's most influential think tanks, the Hudson Institute. In this 19th century mansion, they are looking for alternative futures, both utopian and dystopian. The end product of this think tank, scenarios, scripts for the 21st century. Uh, you know, let's admit that you know, the affluence, the skills, the technology will really make life better in all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. But, the, uh, you know, we also know these things go badly. Right. Uh, uh, okay, everybody's worried about the, uh, the possibilities of, you know, various kinds of social controls and so on. What would the scenario be? Herman Kahn is director of the Institute, Tony Weiner his assistant. It uh, has to involve the, the social controls coming into effect gradually and um, uh, slowly and at each step as a result of some decision which seems to be very much in the general interest. That yeah. is no imposition by um, an evil, uh, evilly intended big brother. How are we going to achieve a utopian peace in our cities, even without the bomb? What is the scenario for a utopian peace? To take a black power movement, right. and one which really is trying to cause problems, put sand in the gears. Right. And you've already set up a good deal of this social uh, watching. Mm. You know, you've got your TV cameras everywhere, you've got your data processing, everybody has his ID card, you've double-checked it. Mm -hmm. And now, all of a sudden, you've got these guys that are throwing sand in the gears. And you clamp down. That is, you keep track of every car. You keep track of every... This is easy to do. You keep track of 10% uh, or 100% of conversation that occurs on telephones. Uh, one could, um, with a computer capacity that will be available in the next couple of decades, one could easily record every phone conversation made. And then one could easily scan mechanically. No human being could spend the centuries that would be required, one could scan every conversation looking for keywords that would identify the conversation as uh, worth looking into a little further. So that, for example, uh, one could begin with a naive set of words, uh, kill, rob, murder, assassinate, plot, uh, conspire. You know, you can do more than that. You could, uh, you could imagine temporarily tranquilizing a whole city. You know, it's been the upset, the riots. Mm -hmm. You know, let's put trans guards either in the air or in the water. Mm -hmm. You know, just mm -hmm. get a people stuck down a bit. Uh, I can imagine you could do the preventive medicine going on in this kind of state. Mm -hmm. You know, where you really check up with everybody and you see that they keep their drug levels right. Yes. In fact, give uh, the first thing you do when you go into uh, to work is they punch you and check your blood and see that the drug level is what it's supposed to be. So you'll you'll buy the safety. Uh, of your city at the expense of the privacy of individuals. And for most people, most of the time, uh, the intrusion will not be the kind of thing they'd be conscious of. 
So the scenario for a utopia without violence is achieved at the expense of your private life. Again, that's from 1961, right at the time that all this started to uh, to take shape. Do you find this coincidental? A lot of people say there's no such thing as a coincidence. I don't know how you guys feel, but there's there's always a link somewhere. There's always a reason. Just the same as no good deed goes unpunished. There's always a link. There's no such thing as a coincidence when you're talking about global politics. Now, I I don't have uh, a fancy way to end all this. Uh, I I don't. But again, I, I've I, and I've just kind of compressed everything. There's more to this. There's a lot more to this. There's all these individuals like who you just heard in that clip that we could go into. I, I could do probably another podcast just on that guy, but we don't have the time. As a matter of fact, we're at time. Uh, but I don't I don't have anything else. We're actually over on time. Bruce, you have any thoughts, especially I wanted to hold that clip right at the end just for you. Is it an accident that we're seeing all of this now? Is it an accident? And more to the point, is it really Klaus Schwab that we're dealing with? Is it really him? Because I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the man's guilty of certain crimes, but I don't think he's the one that's the brainchild behind all this. I think he's guilty for other things from what I've been able to ascertain here. I especially liked the last clip. Uh, that that is that that that's a lot of. That was fun. for you. That was for um, you. I, I had to play that for, just it, for you. It was it was uh, also entertaining watching the uh, the assistants there uh, describe the murder, kill, assassinate. You know, go through the list. The smugness you seen on his face as he was saying those things was yeah. it was quite something to behold, wasn't it? It, it? it was. Yes. He he is definitely a tenth degree black belt in smugness. Um, yes. You say you could do another podcast on what was his name? Who? I'm sorry. The the guy in the white shirt in the clip. Oh, the guy in the white name? shirt. That was um, uh, Herman Kahn. Over the yeah, Herman Kahn, Kahn was his yeah. name. Herman Kahn, right. Yeah. You say you could do another podcast on him, but by the looks of him, he wasn't going to live much beyond that that particular clip. Um, if you're going to put yeah. that clip onto the Telegram page, then the listeners can see what an absolute waste of a human life that man is. Um, I'm not <laughs> fat-shaming also- anyone, but he... There's another guy. There's another guy that was involved with uh, the likes of Herman Kahn as well that was pushed by uh, Henry Kissinger and, and Klaus Schwab as well. And he's a real life Dr. Strangelove. And I'm sure you're aware of the, the whole Dr. Strangelove yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that, I could do another thing on that one, too. Uh, another podcast on that guy, too. I was going to say, uh, my, my point is, I suppose, that he doesn't look like he'd have much of a life to talk about after that clip. All of those things that are happening there in that little think tank in that mansion they're happening at a greater level and an accept you know an accelerated level you had during the pandemic here in the uk we had their advisory group which had more behavioral scientists in it than um virologists or epidemiologists and that has to be the biggest indication as to what their real plan is. It's it's about controlling populations, both in numbers and in their actions. And that goes back to 1961, I believe you said, yeah? 1961. Um, yeah. I, I want to go around the room here, and I know you're, you're on a roll here, but since we're over on time, do you have any final thoughts? Do, do you want to? No, to I've go just ahead? got a lot. I've got a lot to think about. It's been very informative. Uh, thanks to you for digging that deep into it. it. It is interesting. One final word from me is no, Klaus Schwab isn't 
the main man calling the shots, but he's he's the nearest crocodile to the canoe. He's the thing, he's the threat that we can see at the moment, and therefore you could let him run his course, but if he runs his course, we're all screwed and doomed anyway. So I think the best thing would for him to be taken out of the picture in a legal fashion as soon as possible. Bruce, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm of the same opinion as Marty. Schwab is just a face. We, we've kind of said that for a while, but this this more or less confirms it. And just as a uh, another little tidbit, Herman Kahn, he uh, he only lived to be 61. So he lived uh, about 20 years longer than that video. Interview. I wouldn't have put it that long. I really wouldn't. You mean that yeah. man that I was just looked at was only 40 in that he was only video. 40 in that wow. video. Wow. Yeah. He looked like he was 61 yeah. in that video. That's, wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, technically, he would have been uh, 39. God. Yeah. He would have been 39 wow. in that video. That's crazy. Okay. The only thing I have, because I've been talking all all evening, uh, this evening, and I, I want to thank the listener for for being patient to put up with this. And I, I'm sorry that it was as lengthy as it was, but it's a necessary length. You have to understand the backstories of these things. And I didn't even get into all of it. I tried my best to try and keep it to our, our time limit. But you have to understand the backstories of these things to understand who Schwab is today, what we're looking at, what we're made to look at. The reason he's there is because of what these two gentlemen just said. He's there because he's meant to be there. He's been groomed his entire life for this purpose. Now, Who's running the World Economic Forum? Who's running it? It might be Schwab as the uh, the steward, if you will, but it's not his brainchild. This is something else. But I wanted to end on this. I, I want to end on a quote from John F. Kennedy, President John F. Kennedy, who I believe, and I've mentioned several times before, I've got his picture up on the wall here, who I believe was the last true president of the United States. We've been focusing on the early 1960s, early to mid-1960s, end of the 1960s, have we not? And a lot of changes took place after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. This is a speech that he gave at the Walsdorf Astoria Hotel on April 27th in 1961. I want you to ask yourself, after hearing what this man had to say in that speech at the Walsdorf Astoria Hotel, given everything that we've covered here tonight, was it an accident or did he need to be gotten out of the way? For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies on covert means for expanding its sphere of influence on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Gentlemen, I want to thank you guys for being here this evening. Thank you to all of the listeners. Everyone have a fantastic evening.